Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to your word, as we sit underneath it, that you would do for us what we, what we need is we can understand what it says and, and, and we can get the details of it, but we cannot come to believe it. We, we have no power to, to apply it or follow it apart from the gracious intervention of the Spirit. And so would you send the Spirit to cause our, 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 our minds, our hearts, our, our bodies to come more fully alive to your word and to Christ this morning? God, what every single person in this room needs without exception whether they have walked with you for, for 28 years, whether they have not been in a, in, a, in a church service before, whether they have been gone for 10 or 15 years from worshiping with your people, God, and they're just freshly back, God, what all of us need most, whether we are Christians, whether we are non-Christians, whether we are seeking, whether we are asking questions, whether we got drug here, God, what we need most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more full of confidence about what he's done, with ever-growing hope in what he promises to do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and lift Christ high, that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Nine years ago or so, uh, Carol Dweck gave a TED Talk titled, The Power of Yet. She begins by telling this story of a high school in Chicago that instead of giving Fs if a kid doesn't pass a class, you know, she says, like all schools, kids have to pass a certain number of classes to be able to graduate. And so on their process of that, if a kid comes up short, a student comes up short in a class, instead of giving them an F, they give them a not yet. And what was interesting about this, she said that there's, there's power in that because what it does for that student is opposed to saying... I failed, I can't do this, I'm done, the clock has stopped. It says, I'm not yet there. There's this sense of potential, this sense of a next step, this sense of, of, of a, what, what she became a pioneer really in, a, a growth mindset, that things are not stagnant, that, that we're not stuck, that we can learn, that we can improve, that we can grow. The house rule that we're gonna look at today is related to that insight. Everyone is a work in progress. We're not stuck. All of us can improve. All of us can take steps forward. We can all grow. Anyone can. Carol Dweck from her book, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, says this, the view you adopt for yourself profoundly affects the way you lead your life. It can determine whether you become the person you want to be and whether you accomplish the things you value. A verse I probably quote as often as any verse from the Bible is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The one who wrote that, Paul, who helped plant this church, he's writing a letter back to the church of Philippi. And he, he has this confidence, as he actually writes from a prison in Rome, he says, I am sure of this. Dear Christians, that God has began something beautiful in you and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I love that verse. It's saying at least two things. God has started a good thing in his people and he promises to complete it. I hope that's deeply encouraging and if that's all you took away today, I hope that's deeply encouraging if you are in Christ. But I want us to see something else in this verse related to our house rule and that word, yet Paul is in effect saying we live in the space between what God began 
and what God will complete. We live in this unfinished, being finished growth place. We live in this like not yet sort of spot. We aren't what we were and we aren't what we will be. We are works in progress. We are unfinished. We haven't arrived. Not yet. We're going to come back to Philippians 1, but I want to anchor a good deal of what we're about to talk about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's page 992 in the Bibles in front of you. Um, If you're able to stand, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? First Timothy chapter four, verses 12 through 16. Every youth group's life verse. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Feel free to grab a seat. As we begin this, this, this look at, um, or this deeper dive into this house rule that everyone is a work in progress, one of the unfortunate things that can happen, and I think this is per, perhaps particularly a in-church problem, is that when we think of being a work in progress or being unfinished, that somehow that means you're currently deficient or bad, or that it's inherently tied up with needing to sin less, needing to repent more which is no doubt true, that's, that's very much true, is part of our progress is the process of progressive sanctification. It's, it's ru- turning from running from Jesus and turning towards him, you know, turning from sinning towards choosing holiness. But being a work in progress isn't exclusively an issue of morality, but just maturity. I'm gonna try to illustrate that with Jesus in a very easy to miss verse. Luke chapter two, verse 52 And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The story of the incarnation that God himself became a baby baked in and honored progress and process. God chose to wrap himself in such a way that he would have to learn how to speak and walk, how to be potty trained, how to read, how, how, how to do everything. I came across a helpful summary on this verse, and it said something like this. Jesus grew in all aspects that a healthy person normally would be expected to grow. And wisdom, it meant intellectual or mental growth, could include things like he grew in his ability to discern, in stature, physical growth, or mature. I mean, he got bigger, But the word also can mean he increased in his bearing or his presence. He grew in favor with God. This didn't mean that the father began to love him more. It means that he became uh, more spiritually aware, spiritually alive to the things, that there was spiritual growth. It means he grew in attractiveness and charm in, in a way, in favor with man. 
There was social growth. There was relational respect that was given as he aged or, or recognition. Charles Ellicott says it like this, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Here again, we have nothing but normal orderly development. With him, as with others, wisdom widened with the years and came into his human soul through the same channels and by the same processes as into the souls of others. Instruction in the school of Nazareth and attendance at its synagogue. The difference being that he, in every stage, attained the perfection of moral and spiritual wisdom, and this is important, which belongs to that stage. There being in him no sin or selfishness or pride, such as checks the growth of wisdom in all others. They're saying Jesus as a five-year-old was the most sanctified five-year-old. As a 12-year-old, as an 18-year-old. And no doubt, our sin, it gets in the way of our maturing. But, but what, and, and none of us, I hope, would say that part of Christ's growth was his repenting and sinning less. But his process is a target, is an example, is a front runner for our progress, which is not always moral. It's not always a sin issue. Now, there's a lot of ways this house rule is meant to shape our culture, and we'll look at three. We could do a ton. I just edited and edited and edited this sermon because there's so many aspects and angles I'd love to take with it. But we'll look at three, starting with this. It's meant to cultivate patience. If everyone is a work in progress, what that means is you're going you're gonna to be confronted regularly with the need for patience. And we'll apply this both. I want you to keep these two handles as we go through all of this for others and for yourself. Patience for others and for yourself. This isn't uh, an incredible insight, but did you know that babies are not born fully formed adults? They don't come out knowing how to do everything. My wife and I, when with our kids, you know, we didn't expect our one-year-old to walk, and we weren't angry when they didn't. We didn't expect them to, to be able to, to know how to use language to communicate their needs. We didn't expect them to be able to eat solid food, uh, or say thank you when we serve them. We didn't even expect in the early weeks to even smile. I hate to break it to you if you have a new baby or about to have a new baby. When they smile in the first couple weeks, it's not because they're CU. It's because they're gassy. <laughs> they, they, they just have to, de- their eyes don't even work. They have to develop. Knowing this, it sets the right expectations that help us with patience. You know, what should you expect from a six-month-old or a six-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 42-year-old? A number of years ago, I read what was a really helpful book, um, The Teenage Brain, the subtitle, A Neuroscientist's Survival Guide to Raising Adolescents and Young Adults by Franz Jensen. And in it, it's a neuroscientist basically saying, this is what happens in the brain. This is what's going on, particularly in a teenage brain. This is how they're interacting with the chemicals that are produced by their bodies. This is the shape of their brains. These are the parts that are formed and unformed. It says it like this. The most important part of the human brain, the place where actions are weighed, situations judged, and decisions made, is right behind the forehead in the frontal lobes. This is the last part of the brain to develop. Okay, did you catch that? The place where you make good, reasoned decisions is the last part that develops. And this is why you need your teen's frontal lobes. Or, and that's, that is why you, you need to be your teen's frontal lobes until their brains are fully wired and hooked up and ready to go on their own. 
Some of the things that parents shake their heads at and get angry and frustrated with in their teens is due to a still-developing brain. An unfinished frontal lobe is not inherently sinful. It's just God's good design. He chose to make it through progress. He said, I'm not going to have you come out fully formed. It's going to be part of a journey that all of us are on, which means if it's not always sin, it means not everything. And I don't say it just means not everything your teen says and does is sin or rebellion or willful stupidity. Some of it is for sure but not all of it. Sometimes their lack of ability to remember. I thought we talked about that. You said you were gonna do it. You said you are gonna talk to your teacher. You said you are gonna clean up. You said you'd do the laundry. You said you'd mow. You said you'd return the phone call. You said you'd do this. What happened? Why did you forget? It could be sin, for sure. And I always hold out that possibility with, uh, I guess, a 20-year-old and three teenagers now. It could be sin. It could just be they're not fully developed. Uh, Prospective memory is the ability to remember to perform a certain action at a future time. Do you know where it's found? In the executive functioning of the, the frontal lobe. The ability to remember the thing for you, if you've cultivated this habit in your life and you're older, that's easy and you can't figure out why your 15-year-old can't find their, their running shoes before practice, it could be just that their frontal lobe is not developed. One of the things that's interesting in her book, um, in this book, The Teenage Brain, is it says that the frontal lobe gets some development between the ages of like five and nine on average, and then stops developing for like 10 years. <laughs> and then they kick into gear again until the 20s, typically like mid-20s is when it's fully developed. Uh, here's the point. Everyone is a work in progress. As we look at 1 Timothy 4, what's happening in this text is Paul, who uh, helped plant a number of churches, wrote 13 of the, the books of the New Testament, is he's writing a letter back to a church community for sure, this church in Ephesus, but he's really writing to his protege and his son in the faith, Timothy, who's now pastoring what was at this time a very important church um, in, in, the, in, the, in early Christianity. And he's writing back to him to instruct him, to inform him, to, to direct him. How is he supposed to pastor as a newer or younger pastor? You saw the reference here in the text, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was not a teenager, most likely. Most scholars would say he was probably in his early 30s. That word can be used from the ages up to about 35, 40 or so. So he's likely a little bit older than what we typically think, but he was still young at this time. And he's writing to him to encourage him. And what he's really saying is, Timothy, you are ready for this. You're qualified for this. And you haven't arrived. I love that about this text. You will grow as a pastor, as a Christian. You are right now a good example to others in speech and conduct and faith and purity and love. And I want you to keep growing. Verse 15 in this little section is probably my favorite verse and one that almost always gets stepped over. We start with the first ones. We end with watch your life and your doctrine closely for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your ears. And those are all so important. But look at verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Timothy, you are qualified to be a pastor and you're not yet the pastor you will be. Timothy, you are a fine example of Christ and yet you will grow in your example of Christ. You're a work in progress and still competent to be used by God. I planted, um, I was part of the planting team of Planting Redeemer when I was 29 
Um, I'd never led an organization. I'd never found a facility or building. I'd never written bylaws. I'd never um, built a, an elder board. I'd never been an elder. I'd never been to an elder meeting. I'd, I'd only preached five times in my entire life and never two Sundays in a row. My lack of experience wasn't sin. It was just inexperience. I remember hearing this line from Tim Keller. He was training a bunch of preachers, and uh, he said something like this. We desperately want, and I, and I resonated with this as a 29-year-old, we desperately want our sermons to be good. And then he goes on and says this, someone that I look up to so much. He goes, but here's reality. For the first 200 sermons, no matter what you do, your first 200 sermons are going to be terrible. <laughs> oh, that was deeply encouraging. <laughs> No matter what I do, no matter how many hours I work, no matter how much I, I, I labor at this and invest, your first 200, 200, not 20, 200 sermons are going to be terrible. That's super encouraging when you have five under your belt and you're looking at a new community. So I did the math and it doesn't take long to do this. At that rate, it'd be about four years. Four years. And it's not even that then they'll be good. It's just they're not terrible. Depending on how you take Keller's statement, that approach that we have room to grow, that, that Timothy, you're qualified and yet you're going to get better, that can be discouraging. Be like, oh, I want to be great at this. I want to be, be, be a better parent. I want to I have more skill. I, I want to I know the right thing always to say. I want to, as, as a new teacher, man, I want to serve my students well. I want to connect with parents as a, as a coach, as a, as a newly promoted manager, as a, as a boss, as a, as a new husband or a new wife or 10 years into being married or wherever it is. We, we want to be better. And what's baked into this text is that's a good desire and yet you haven't arrived, which means you always have room to grow. You haven't hit your ceiling. You're not going to be flawless. Your first 200 sermons are going to be just straight up terrible. It can be discouraging, which is how I felt like in the early days. If I look back for years, I just felt like it just it felt like this crazy pressure to be better than I possibly could be at that stage of my development. Anyone else ever feel that? And I would walk away every Sunday just going, I failed everybody. As if the need to grow was somehow inherently a failure. It must be because I'm lazy. It must be because I, I, I'm not putting in the effort. It must be because I just lack the gifts to do it. It must be that I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should just quit. Or maybe I should just trust the process that God wants to grow us. See, this sense of, of progress, that everyone is a work in progress, it can be discouraging, but it also can be really liberating. It actually, if you embrace it, you, you begin to relax a little bit. This is where I'm at, at this age, at this stage of my life. You know, you, you, you can't force maturity. You, you just can't. It doesn't mean to be passive and lazy, and we're going to get to this as we go through these house rules. But you can't instapot this. It just, it's part of the journey that God designed all of us, and he dignified that through Christ coming in flesh. He designed it this way. Paul to Timothy, you're ready for this, and you'll get better. Everyone is a work in progress. Patience, patience. 29, I was learning how trying to learn how to lead a church and how to preach and pastor, I am for sure, I hope, still learning. Um, take 2020. That was, that was a fun year. Um, 
I made mistakes for sure. There's things I did that were sinful for sure. I also did things and made decisions that I think are right and God-honoring, and I still believe that. But as I look back on those mistakes, here's the reality. Not all of them were sin. Some of them were just an experience. That's not a pass to not be wise and to, to seek counsel and to be prayerful. But in our lives, as we're faced with situations we haven't experienced before, we're going to make some errors. Some of that is not sin. It's just inexperience. Inexperience isn't sin. Anyone? Amen? Limits are not sin. See, what's baked into this idea of being works in progress is this sense of limits. We have limits of experience. We have limits of ability. We have limits of energy. We have limits of gifting. We have limits of chronology. A 32-year-old cannot have the life experience of a 64-year-old. It is impossible. It's impossible. Everyone is a work in progress. And to the extent that we believe that, what we do is, is we exude what I would say is a very close companion of patience is that we are the opposite of irritable and annoyed with other people that were, were enjoyable. <laughs> I've had uh, three kids do orchestra. You know, when your kid comes home and they tell you the instrument they chose and they say a string instrument. You're like, oh, goodness. And so you show up at sixth grade at their first concert, and you're in the cafetorium, and you see 58 six-year-olds that have been handed a string instrument for the first time in their life, and they're going to play for you. And if you've ever heard someone who's never played a string instrument play, and you have 58 of them, it's like they all were handed a cat, and they just yanked the tail. <laughs> You know, it's just, and if, if you've gone through, if you haven't, I'm just preparing you because this is what happens. They all play hot cross buns. Every single one of them. Hot cross buns. You know, it's just, and they're all off and none of them are synced up. It is, I have to dig so deep after the concert. Daddy, how'd I do? I've never heard anything like it. That sure was something. <laughs> you know what's incredible, though, is the, the teacher, the conductor, who signs up for this year after year after year and has so much joy. They're not irritated. There's so much joy. You watch them, and they're like, oh, my goodness, they're just beginning, and look what they can do. And then they, when you get to the eighth graders, because you, you know, middle school is six through eight, so then the eighth graders perform, and they say, I want you to remember, do you remember like what you heard the sixth graders and how they're beginning? Just in a few years, this is what they sound like. And it's better. Not amazing, it's better. It's better. It's not a lie, we can be honest here. And then you go a couple more years, oh my goodness, this last year when I was listening to Lily play in high school, there was moments, and it's not my favorite genre of music, but there were some moments I was so moved. Like, you can't get there apart from the sixth grade. You just can't get there. Everyone is a work in progress. Timothy, don't beat yourself up about the fact that you need to grow. We all need to grow. And don't, tell, don't sell yourself short that where you're at is not good enough to be helpful. 
Everyone is a work in progress. Let me, let me apply this to a question. What do you expect of others? Right? So we want patience with ourselves and others. We want to have a good-hearted flinch. Not angry and irritable. Like, what, what, what do you expect of your kid's new teacher? What do you expect of a, of a new server at a restaurant? What do you expect of a new driver? You know how you see those, those, those bumper stickers now, like, you know, please be kind, student driver. Just to try to alert, just to get an extra measure of like, hey, I'm just figuring this out. You know, what do you expect of a, of a new boss? What do you expect of, you know, a, a, a new coach? I would tell you, I think the way a lot of us talk, including myself, is I think what we expect is for them to be fully formed and mature and incredible. Not a 25-year-old trying to figure it out. Or a 32-year-old, or a 58-year-old, or a new grandparent. You know, it's always that. It's, it's always this, we're, 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 we're always taking steps forward, we hope, because we're works in, in progress. You know, are we, are we angry? Are we frustrated? Are we frustrated constantly because people are sinners? Are we surprised by it? Or do we go towards this place of Colossians 3 that says, let's bear with one another. That means to, to give people space to become the works that God wants them to become. Not angry, not irritable, not frustrated. Timothy likely served the Ephesian church well. That's, that's my assumption. When I look at this, like, Timothy, you're a good example. And devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and the prayers. Like, keep practicing these things. I imagine Timothy was a good pastor. He was a faithful pastor of that community. Here's what he wasn't, a perfect pastor. He wasn't a pastor with 20 years of experience or 30 years or 40 years. He probably flubbed some counseling sessions. He probably got the exegesis wrong. But it didn't mean he wasn't qualified or good or good enough. He was a work in progress. If everyone is a work in progress, that includes every leader, every coach, every manager, every husband, every wife, every 10-year-old, every 15-year-old, every boss, every parent, every, every grandma, every grandpa, every pastor, everyone. Everyone is a work in progress. And so what we want is patience for ourselves and for others. I'll do this next point a little bit quicker. Patience, but also humility. One of the things that should happen if we're really embracing that we are all works in progress, we're all in process, if we haven't arrived, it should give us a disposition of humility. You know, consider 1 Timothy again and all these things that Paul tells Timothy to these verses are loaded with a more seasoned pastor telling a less seasoned pastor, or you could, if you want to translate it to whatever industry you find yourself in, a more seasoned leader to a less seasoned leader, a more seasoned parent to a less seasoned parent, saying, this is what I want you to do. I think I know some things that maybe you don't know. I've walked the road before you. And he tells Timothy, you're qualified, you still have much to learn. Now, when he read that, when Timothy got this letter, he said, nah, I'm going to do it my way. We can tend towards that too. Thinking again about the teenage brain, there's this great scene in the book, because imagine having your mom, because she had teenage boys, and imagine having your mom do all these workshops on teenage brain development and then leveraging that against her. Well, mom, yeah, I know I did something stupid, but as you well know, my frontal lobe is not fully formed. <laughs> 
It's amazing how reasoned a teenager can be when they want to be. And I love the mom's response. She would look at her sons and say, well, no, your brain is sometimes an explanation. It's never an excuse. Because we're works in progress, it might be an explanation, but it's not an excuse. Like, we don't get to be knuckleheads until we grow. I mean, we are. First house rule, it's okay to not be okay. We can be messes. But the, this isn't an invitation towards, well, one day I'll get there. Right now, it doesn't matter. It's more a call towards humility and an eagerness to take a posture of learning from those that have gone before. Consider the book of Proverbs, this collection of, of wisdom statements, forming wisdom and virtue in, in people. The whole context, if you go to chapter one in Proverbs, here's what you have. You have a dad talking to a son. He says, son, I want you to follow my instruction and your mother's instruction. And then later in the chapter, he says, son, you're simple. In Proverbs, there's these different categories. One of them is the person, the, the person who's simple. And what that's saying, it's not a derogatory insult. It's saying it makes sense. You have things to learn. But if you're not willing to humble yourself and bow your knee before the wisdom I'm giving you, here's what you will become, the scoffer. You will become the fool. Our need to grow is not an excuse to be a knucklehead. It's an invitation to humble ourselves and say, there might be wisdom that I could piggyback on, right? We can, we can piggyback just like your teenager needs your fully formed frontal lobe to piggyback on. Well, we get to piggyback on the maturity and growth of others, God's word, God's people. And one of the things that happens when you embrace that your work in progress is posture of humility. You're quick to learn. You're, you're quick to admit mistakes. You're significantly less defensive when things are pointed out as growth areas. Why? Because you're a work in progress. Everyone is a work in progress. Patience, humility, I'll give you one more, and full of hope. It's one of the things I love about it is that this house was you are full, full of hope that we're not stuck. Here's what I'm not going to do with this first Timothy text. Talk about how we grow. There is a ton in these verses about how to grow. Follow good examples. Devote yourself to the right things. Watch your life and doctrine closely and on and on. And I'm going to save the how we grow for the house rule, grace and grit, our best friends. This week, all I want to do is say this. We can grow. We can grow. Anyone can grow. Progress is possible. This house rule, it nurtures patience and humility and it infuses us with hope hopefully for others, and for ourselves. Think again about Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And then a few verses later, you hear this prayer. In verse 9, it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul is saying that you can grow in this good thing that's already started. You can abound in it more and more. He has baked into that prayer a belief that the Philippians can have a good thing and it can abound more and more, that they haven't peaked, that they're not stuck. Over the years, I've mentioned a book and recommended a book partly because, just really because of the title. There's a lot in the book that's good, but it's a marriage book and I'm always, I kind of always, with a wry smile, just always go, this is my favorite title for a marriage book. So what did you expect? And I love that it has in it this understanding of marriage can be hard. 
and you're pulling two works in progress together and that's gonna be difficult. But the, but the thing that I, that I don't like about it is it almost gives an impression that that's all it can be. And that really marriage is about two sinners, you know, basically resigning themselves to the fact that they're always gonna be just huge, miserable, rotten sinners and they probably just need to forgive a lot. Which might be true. <laughs> if anyone wants to talk about marriage later, let's, you know. When my kids were younger, a very common conversation between my wife Katie and myself was something like this. She would get, you know, frustrated, annoyed, sad. It seemed like surprised when our kids would do knuckleheaded things. And I would always be like, Katie, I really believe we should have very low expectations for our kids, but high hopes. And the point was, well, they're sinners. They're going to screw up. We should basically just not expect a whole lot, even though we hope for a whole lot. That was wrong-headed. What I said to her was wrong-headed. For sure, they're works in progress, which is both moral and maturing. It's all of those things, which means they are going to screw up. But to set such low expectations is to deny that they actually have agency to change. And opportunities to be responsible and power to, to make different choices. You know, one way you might think about this for yourselves and for others is to hold together the idea of Good Friday and Easter. The Good Friday and the cross is the declaration that we are indeed deep, deep sinners. That we could not save ourselves. That we have so many missteps, so much sin, so much rebellion, so much inability that God himself had to come and die on a cross that any of us might be saved. But sometimes we stay there, that all we are is just sinners who have no abilities, no agency, no hope for change. We have the grace of God that forgives us. Praise God for that. But you know what we also have is an empty tomb. See, Easter is the declaration that death is, is dead. And of the many things that the resurrection does, it validates what Christ did on the cross. It, it's, the, it's an image of what's coming in the future for us, that death will not hold all those that trust Christ. But you know what else it does? It's a declaration of the very power that rise, raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in us. There's an ability for new life. I love how Romans 8.11 says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We ain't stuck, y'all. We're not stuck. Oh, we sin. We sin so much. But we're not stuck. We can grow. The very spirit that raised Christ from the dead. We can grow. We're a work in progress. We can actually make progress. I love this house rule for at least these two reasons. We can grow and we haven't peaked. Your best versions of you through the tutelage of the word of God and the power of the spirit amongst the people of God can result in a more glorious more sanctified, more Christ-like version of any of us. Over the, over the years, a number of people that helped plant Redeemer, um, they've moved away and then they'll come back and they'll visit on a Sunday and they'll come up to me um, and this has happened a number of times and they'll say something like this, Rob, you've become such a better preacher. <laughs> a sort of comment, I'll be honest with you, used to really sting. I was like, well, what was I before? Terrible. Yeah, I was, remember Keller. Terrible. 
over the years when people say that, it doesn't sting anymore. It's actually super encouraging. I love the idea that I haven't arrived. They're like, who I am as a dad right now can be good. I, ho- I, hope, it's, I hope it's faithful. I know there's sin. I know there's mess-ups. I know there's selfishness. I don't, but I hope that I'm, I'm a godly presence to my kids. I'm imperfect but genuine reflection of the Father. But I'm not done yet. I hope as a husband where I feel probably the most failure in my life that, that I actually can look more like Christ and love my wife more how Christ loves the church, that I'm not done yet. I hope as a pastor, man, I want to be a better pastor. I wish I, wish I had the heart of a 78-year-old pastor for you, but I can't. I can be, by God's grace, the most sanctified 47, 46-year-old. I'm getting to that age where I don't remember. Mid-40s. But I haven't peaked. That's so deeply encouraging. Like, you're not stuck and you haven't arrived. Everyone is a work in progress. And we will arrive. That's one of the great blessings of Christianity. We will arrive. Look back again at Philippians 1.6. I love the certainty that Paul speaks with. Oh, and I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I love the certainty and I love the location of that certainty because the location of that certainty is not us, but God. God started a project. God will complete it. Most of my uncles on my mom's side, she comes, she's got 12 brothers and sisters. They're called the Dirty Dozen. Um, and uh, they're a wild crew, man. It was fun to grow up with them. I got like 108 first cousins. Um, but uh, no, I think it's like 65, though. Um, most of my uncles on my mom's side, they work construction. Some of them, one man band, they do their own thing. Some of them run bigger companies. Some do smaller jobs. Some do larger projects. But they all, without fail, have this in common. None of their own house projects are ever finished. <laughs> ever. They also have this in common. None of my aunts um, are happy about it. So... <laughs> Family get-togethers were always them complaining that they never finished the projects around the house. It's not that way with God. He won't leave any of us half-made or unfinished. It is in this way that we have a major difference between how Christianity looks at this house rule and how our culture can look at this house rule. Our culture can for sure, hey, we're all works in progress. We can have growth mindsets. We can take steps forward. We can give grades of not yet. But this house rule isn't fundamentally about how we improve ourselves, but the deeper promise that God will grow us. It's guaranteed. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A work in progress, a growth mindset, a not yet attitude is replaced not by a hope but with the work of Christ and the promise of God. I love how Scott Sauls says it in the book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. There is coming a day when we, his beloved children by faith, will feel younger, stronger, smarter, faster, happier, and more rested, tended to, and full-hearted than we can even dream about currently. Our work will be fulfilling, even fun. Our play will be epic and unending. Our connection with God and each other will be a deep source of joy and fulfillment. Honesty will be effortless. Love will be the norm. 
that's the promise. Like us works in progress. Us unfinished people will become masterpieces under the craftsmanship of God himself. I am sure of this. And until that day, here's something else that's true. We grow from a God-given identity and our right now status as sons and daughters. See, that's the good news of the gospel is we're not trying to improve our way into the kingdom of God. The gospel is that Christ Jesus came and did what we could not do, went to a cross that we deserved, took the punishment that we merited, rose from the dead as a declaration that it all worked, not just that we would be forgiven, that we would be adopted and brought in. See, we get to be works in progress as right now sons and daughters who will not learn that, lose that status based upon our slowness to grow or our accolades. This couldn't be more different than culture. And nothing could be more sure than it. We get to be works in progress right now as forgiven, loved, adopted sons and daughters in whom a good work has begun and in whom a good work will one day be brought to completion. Let me end with a very positive vision of how we might as a church with one another, as families with one another, as friends with one another, as fellow Christians with one another. If you're a non-Christian, I'd love for you to get in on this can apply this house rule to each other. And the, I'm going to read a quote from The Meaning of Marriage. I read it last week, but I want you to scale it. This is talking about in marriage, but you can scale it and transpose it into all of your relationships. Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. Or within this vision of a Christian church infused with grace, sustaining and grace transforming. It's to look at another person to get a glimpse of what God is creating and say, I see who God is making you. And it excites me and I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Everyone's a work in progress. And because of the promise of God, and the work of Christ. One day we'll say this. I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses on earth, but now look at you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make your promises, make your word come more alive to us. Make the reality that we aren't stuck and that we haven't arrived feel like such good news because of the greater good news of Christ and what he's done. That we're able to hear this as an invitation to grow, not for a place in your kingdom, but from and through our identity and status, through faith in Christ as sons and daughters. Cultivate in us with this a, a joyful patience, not a long-suffering annoyance with others. And God, maybe what we need to hear more is with ourselves. No doubt this is not an invitation towards laziness or, or a lack of desire. But God, I don't know if that's most often the problem. And so I ask that you would apply this truth in our lives to invite us towards patience and humility but a whole lot of hope. And that you would shape this church culture, God, to be a place that believes 
Growth is possible and bears with one another where it's still yet to take place. God, I, I pray that you would do a work in our homes. That as parents rightfully instruct and demand things of their kids and shape them and guide them, that they themselves will remember that they too, as parents, are works in progress. That we're all still maturing. God, that you would remind that whatever station we find ourselves in, no doubt, God, being a work in progress includes repenting of sin and where that needs to take place, help us to do that by the work of your spirit. God, where it's not sin and it's skill acquisition, where it's not sin, it's habit formation, where it's not sin, it's reordering our loves, God, wherever it is, we ask that you would just grow us. And you do it for our good. And even as this First Timothy text ended with, we would do it for the good of others. Keep the promise of Philippians 1.6 loud as we do, as we live in this yet moment between what you started and what you will complete. Knowing we're, we're not what we was and we're not what we will be, but by your grace we will become it. In Jesus' name, amen.